Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, we sit down with oculofacial plastic surgeon, Dr. Elizabeth Bradley, to talk about facial nerve injury and facial reanimation, what the ophthalmologist needs to know, and more. Dr. Elizabeth Bradley is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where she serves as Program Director for the ASOPR-sponsored Oculofacial Plastic Surgery Fellowship. In addition to her clinical interest in ophthalmic aspects of facial nerve disorders, Dr. Bradley is a member of Mayo Clinic's face transplant team. She was the ophthalmic plastic surgeon for Mayo Clinic's first face transplant performed in 2016. Dr. Bradley also works in multidisciplinary teams through Mayo Clinic's Facial Reanimation Clinic and the Thyroid Eye Disease Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Bradley. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's so nice to have you here. You are a mentor to me. You taught me everything I know. So we're really excited to talk about facial nerve disorders. It's a special niche that you have that not all oculoplastic surgeons share. And I think it's very relevant to all ophthalmologists. We all see facial nerve disorders and facial nerve injury. So, and it's really hard to treat. So tell us about facial nerve palsies, the kind of the spectrum, what ophthalmologists may see and what they need to know. Yes, so certainly the most common facial nerve palsy is Bell's palsy, idiopathic facial nerve palsy, which we think is probably a viral illness. And that's the most common. That affects all ages. The facial nerve can be affected at any age. So we can see children who are born with a facial nerve palsy from it just not developing in utero to young people who have either Bell's palsy or an intracranial mass, to older people who have a stroke. And really at all ages of life, Bell's palsy is the most common cause. With Bell's palsy or idiopathic facial nerve palsy, most of those patients will recover, but it's very much age dependent. So young patients have the greatest chance of success, but patients over 70 only have maybe a 25 to 30% chance of facial nerve recovery from a Bell's palsy. And in the recovery stage, sometimes the strength of the muscles can return, but we can run into new problems, for example, with synkinesis, which can be a big problem with things not being coordinated and able to work independently anymore. You've certainly helped me on so many of my pediatric ophthalmology patients with facial nerve palsy or other abnormalities of the face. Share with, whether you're examining a child or an adult. There are probably things that you need to think differently, but some common themes. When you have a patient that you're concerned has a facial nerve palsy, what do you take into consideration in your history or in your examination to understand the status of the patient and or the appropriateness for whether a patient could have alternative care steps on the horizon? There are really three major things. In addition to the extent of the facial nerve palsy, and most of the patients we're seeing have fairly extensive, really a complete facial nerve palsy. But within that group of patients, the main things are corneal sensation. So do we have a cranial nerve five and a cranial nerve seven problem? If so, they automatically go into a high risk category. And then the degree to which they do or don't have a Bell's phenomenon. So the vast majority of people do, but plenty of people don't. And they can be neurologically intact and just not have a good reflex where their eye rolls up. So if you ask them to close their eyes, in addition to the lag ophthalmos, 
they have a major part of their cornea showing, that's also a high-risk group. On the other hand, if they have an excellent Bell's phenomenon, their eye rolls up and all you see is white sclera, then those patients make me much less worried. Do you guys grade that or is it just good Bell's or poor Bell's? I'm not Question. sure if there's a grading system per no. se, sure. but, but I sure. do use okay. a fairly qualitative. I just want to make yeah. sure I wasn't missing something yeah. in my clinics where I should um, <laughs> as and, I send them your way. And the third thing is really what's the current status of the cornea relative to the care that they're already giving. So if their cornea is in pretty bad shape, but they're not doing anything, then you know that you have some room for improvement. On the other hand, if they're doing a lot and you're seeing even modest corneal exposure, then that's an eye that can really get into trouble. And especially then if it's an insensate cornea, then you really have to worry that the patient can get into trouble without realizing it. Yeah, the corneal sensation and cranial nerve 5 is such a good tip that I think is really easy to forget about. I always remember 7 plus 5 equals T, T not for 12, but T for tarsorophy. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. where I learned that, but it's embedded in my mind. 7 plus 5 equals T. Yes. Because <laughs> you worry about those patients big time. Yes. And so one tip that I give to our residents is... When I go to look at the cornea with fluorescein, I use the fluorescein strip. I don't use the drop, since the drop has the numbing agent in it, and I use the strip with some saline, and I use the strip to test corneal sensation. So that's one of the very first Easy. things I'm doing. You've got it, you've checked the corneal sensation. How do you administer that? Do you check the good eye first and then the numb anesthetic cornea? How do you check it? Are you asking the patient on a scale of one to 10 how sensitive this is, or what, what do you do? So I don't usually check the good eye because they don't usually yeah. want you to check the good <laughs> yeah, sure, eye then sure. once they've felt what it feels like in the good eye. So I usually go right to the affected eye and I wet it with some saline and then I explain to them what I'm going to do. And I also don't want to damage the cornea, especially if it is an anesthetic cornea. So I don't want to make a big swipe across the cornea with my fluorescein strip. So I pull down their lid, I have them look up, I explain that I'm going to touch and I initially start by checking their conjunctival scleral sensation. And I do a light dab, and if they don't have any withdrawal reflex or voice that they can feel that, then I'll do a harder poke on the conjunctiva and sclera. If they're still not feeling anything, then I'll work up to the very inferior part of the cornea, just above the limbus, and I'll tap there. And if they make no withdrawal at all, then that to me is definitely a warning sign. What's your kind of algorithm for treatment based on how early in the course of their facial nerve palsy they've presented, how do you decide when to escalate treatment and what you're gonna do? Well, so it's always this balancing act of, do we expect the facial nerve to recover? What's our timeline here? So if this is somebody, probably the most common setting we would see um, where a patient gets referred in with an acute facial nerve palsy would be potentially after surgery. So after acoustic neuroma resection, they wake up the morning after surgery and the face is paralyzed. The neurosurgeon says, we stimulated the nerve, it was intact during the case, or sometimes they say, we cut the nerve, we know that we had to cut the nerve, but we put a nerve interposition graft in there and we expect that patients are going to recover within the next nine months. So then we know, well, okay, we have about a nine month time frame here. And so then I really, I try to nurse things along without doing permanent interventions until then. If at month six, seven, eight, we're not seeing anything at all, 
then we really have to prepare ourselves that now the facial muscles are becoming denervated and our window to intervene is closing. So we think of that as a nine to 12 to maybe 15 months in a young person that you can have denervated facial muscles and have those muscles be re-innervated. Oh, wow. I guess I didn't realize that. So if you wanted to re-innervate those muscles, you're going to intervene with your surgery. And what are you exactly doing surgically? So, and so here we're talking not just about the blink, but about the face. Right. And in these cases, I collaborate most closely with Dr. Samir Mardini and also Dr. Waleed Gabriel in plastic surgery. And so for making the face move, you need a functioning muscle and a functioning nerve. Well, so the nerve is out by definition, and so you've got to keep the muscle alive if you want to have an active face. And so if they are somebody that has had a a relatively acute nerve injury, you can potentially still salvage their facial muscles, but you have to keep them alive. And that's where they often do what's called like a babysitter procedure, where they're bringing in some adjacent muscle. It might be something innervated by the motor division of five, the masseter muscle, or it might be innervated by the hypoglossal or the spinal accessory nerve. They're swinging that nerve up to keep those muscles with some nerve innervation, Mm -hmm. some nerve tone, Mm -hmm. muscle tone by nerve innervation, so that then they can do the definitive surgery, which is typically cross-face nerve grafting. And so for that, nerves that are actually sensory nerves, like the sural nerves from the patient's leg, are implanted into the face hooked up to the contralateral normal side to power the ipsilateral abnormal side. But that takes some time for those nerves to perk up and start doing that job. And so in the meantime, the the patient, if you're trying to use their native facial musculature, that muscular needs to be babysat, so to speak, by other nerves. So timing then, if you had an acute event, neurosurgical or trauma or Bell's palsy or some event that happened, you're saying you're monitoring their surface disease and making sure they're okay. When does the babysitting nerve effort come in prior to this nine to 15 month or whatever it might be where you're actually doing the definitive? Are you doing a babysitting procedure at six months or nine months or? Six months would typically be the earliest if we felt like there was a potential for the nerve to recover. More like often like in that seven, eight, nine months to do the babysitter. How long to babysit before you try to full graft? Keeping in mind, these are fairly major surgeries for people to Mm -hmm. go through. So they do the babysitter. And then with the babysitter in place, then that takes off the time pressure because those muscles now are getting their innervation. They're not going to die off. And so then sometimes it would be within a year or two that they have the cross-face nerve grafts. The babysitter procedure can give excellent tone and some movement to the face. It typically doesn't give a spontaneous smile. And so, for example, when the motor branch of five is used, patients have to clench their jaw to make their mouth smile. Some patients can learn to do that in a fairly subtle way, but yeah, patients often don't find that to be the seamless facial animation that they want. This is fascinating. So one other question then. Mm -hmm. The babysitter used to do something else. What happens to that part of their face and what into the consent process? What are you sacrificing as you're asking a babysitter to do something else? That's right. Sometimes they do lose some strength in the original muscle, but but the entire nerve is not getting taken. Samir Mardini and Walid Gabriel could tell us how much, but something like, say, 30 to 40% of those nerve fibers are getting transferred. Hmm. 
It's so interesting. So talk to us about some of the eye pathology we see because, I mean, for me, when I see these patients, I'm dealing with really bad brow ptosis, really bad lag ophthalmos, and usually really bad ectropion. And in my mind, I always think if they've already developed an ectropion, that's never going to get better. And so I don't really put a timeline on it for surgical intervention. If they need it fixed, it's never going to improve in my mind, so I just fix it. How do you deal with the loss of orbicularis tone and everything that goes along with that? So, I mean, first we think about what are our non-surgical options, and we have many for these patients, fortunately. So something that we find helpful in these patients, I mean, first of all, we're looking at punctal plugs, although tearing is a whole separate issue. Tearing is so complex in these patients. Some are too wet, some are too dry. The blink dynamics right, are exactly. completely they've affected. Lost their, they've lost their tear pump, and so many of them are too wet but then some of them don't have moisture where they need it. And so so punctal plug is an option. But the thing that can really help a lot is bandage lenses with these mm-hmm. patients. So either a soft contact lens, bandage lens, or we work with Muriel Shornack and Sherry now rehabilitating many corneas with scleral lenses. That has been a huge, huge help, especially for our patients who have cranial f- nerve 5 and cranial nerve 7 problems. And so that can be helpful from a non-surgical standpoint. Certainly temporary tarsorophies mm-hmm. we use, a, even a Botox tarsorophy to the upper lid if you really think that we just need to paralyze the blink at the eyelid down. But also, yeah, lots of just sponge bolster tarsorophies. I'll take like a 4-0 or 5-0 proline, put it over either a red rubber catheter or a little sponge, surgical sponge of some type. And that will get me six to eight to even 12 weeks of help. There are tape-on gold weights. So MedDev company makes an external gold weight that come in five different flesh tones. And I don't know, every, they're every 0.2 grams, I think. So you can demonstrate that to the patient. In the clinic, we have a set of gold weights that we tape on to their eyelid. Some patients love them, and some patients try them and just decide it's not for them. It's about $120 or so for a gold weight. So that can be a temporizing measure. In general, I find that in children with a congenital facial nerve palsy, they generally don't have eye problems unless they have the cranial nerve 5 problem as well. Their um, tear films are so good. Exactly. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Generally, a lot, most of them have a good Bell's phenomenon. Yep. Good yeah, tear the bells film. Bell's too, yes. Yeah. And they don't have the age related laxity, so they don't get the ectropion. They might have a little bit of lower lid retraction, a millimeter or two. Um, but so, yeah, generally the kids, we don't have to intervene just for the eye. We'll add some things if, the, if they're having facial reanimation, we might add some things but we're not typically having to take them to the operating room just for the eye. I'm so glad you mentioned the Botox tarsorophy because I don't know if that's commonplace, but I love a Botox tarsorophy. It's so elegant. It closes the lid really nicely. A lot of patients are super opposed to having a bolster in place for a long time, or I think providers are are worried about having to deal with suture or cheese wiring through the lid, or they just don't want to do it. So I think a Botox tarsorophy is such a nice option. The only downside is that it does last three months, which can sometimes be longer than you want the lid to be closed. Eric, you'll love this. I have one Botox tarsorophy story, and then I'll stop talking. I had a patient with an acute Bell's palsy. Cornea looked terrible, and she was doing all the things. And I said, we can sew the lid closed, or we can do Botox in the last three months, but your your cornea is bad. She said, let's just do it. So we did the Botox. Being monocularly occluded for three months 
broke down a congenital fourth nerve palsy that she had been fusing, but being occluded for so long, broke it down. And when her lid opened, she had double and she never got single back. And I felt so terrible. Isn't that wild? So, so uh, certainly there are rare times where very euphoria, rare, right? Euphoria can. On the flip side, I wish that Botox, ptosis, become because of Botox would be more helpful with things like amblyopia because they just raise right. their brows and it's right. not enough. But certainly in these patients that are exposed, you're right. It's a useful tool. It's a great option. Yeah. Yep. And and just other non-surgical options and one other thought. Any other? What are your thoughts on? You know, growth factors or insulin drops or other things, or is there anything else that you found helpful, or is it just you know, lubricate, 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 and use your surgical steps when needed? That is an area that I don't feel like I keep up with as much as our cornea yeah. colleagues do. And so if I'm having a patient where I just cannot get things healed, then I'll call in our excellent sure. cornea colleagues to help with that. Yeah, there's some really interesting new drops in terms of neurotrophic keratitis and he- overall healing. It's very interesting. Lots, lots of cool options out there. So you talk about the Botox and the tarsorophies as we're monitoring and protecting their surface. When it comes then in that in that cohort where you actually are going to get to the full facial reanimation process, share with us what criteria patients those are. I mean, obviously, those are ones that have some acute event that you're needing to you have a window that you can reanimate versus say my understanding a person with chronic herpetic disease with no definitive time frame just loss of corneal sensation share with us which patients are eligible or not as we do these fairly dramatic reanimation procedures and what's your role with with the facial reanimation team to accomplish those there are several considerations one would be patient age that the facial reanimation, we're typically bringing in muscles and nerves, and we can talk about particulars, but they have to be healthy, vital tissues. So over the age of 70, typically, patients would not undergo dynamic reanimation, but rather have some static reanimation, and that might be a brow lift, what's called a labay procedure, where their temporalis is swung down to try to give some more lift to the smile and other static procedures. But in our younger patients, really regardless of the length of the palsy, we do have animation that we can offer. So we talked about being able to use your own muscle if you've had an acute facial nerve palsy, but what about the patient who comes in who had their Bell's palsy 10 years ago and was told nothing could be done? So something can be done for those patients. That involves now in addition to a nerve, a muscle has to be brought in so what our plastic surgery colleagues do for that is typically to bring in, for example, the gracilis muscle, which is one of the muscles in the legs, a relatively thin strap muscle in the legs, bring that with its artery, vein, and nerve, bring that into the face and replace the facial musculature with that, driven by the cross-face nerve graft that's been pre-placed and come to life. Hmm. Really amazing options. And then there are some very specific procedures that you perform for eyelid rejuvenation in these patients as well. Talk to us about some of those options because they're very unique and not a lot of people do them. Certainly, I mean, starting from the top down, we definitely look at the brow position in these patients. And so many patients benefit from endoscopic or direct brow elevation, but that always has to be tempered. If we're dealing with an exposed eye, then we'll often defer that until we get the eye into better shape. For the upper eyelid, 
We don't have a way yet to actively reanimate it, but it's a matter typically of, of loading the eyelid with a gold weight, gold or platinum, but gold is the most common. And that can be placed in either a pretarsal or a supratarsal position. And so the pretarsal is the most common location, dissect, you know, make a lid crease incision, dissect a pocket in that pretarsal space and put the weight there. That gives excellent closure. The vector is excellent for loading the eyelid, but cosmetically, not all patients like that. And so that's the trade-off. And we talk to patients about that and we can demonstrate again in the clinic, we can tape a weight on and they can see how that improves their blink and their closure. The other location is in the supratarsal location. So we're still making an eyelid crease incision, but we're dissecting superiorly. We're putting the base of the weight at the superior tarsal border and then tucking it between, typically between levator and Mueller. So redrape the levator over top of the weight. That though does not give us as much closure, but sometimes it gives us just enough in a more cosmetically acceptable location. Another consideration that we talk to patients about though is that of course the weight depends on gravity and so the patient has to be upright for, for it to have its effect. If they are back sleepers, we can potentially actually worsen their nocturnal lag ophthalmos. And we just did a research study with Chris Stewart, one of our previous fellows looking at exactly that. So having patients who had gold weights upright and reclined and especially in the supratarsal location it does tend to worsen the nocturnal lag ophthalmos mm, that's so, so interesting it, yeah so that's a discussion that we have about the upper eyelid another procedure that can be done that's very straightforward for oculoplastic surgeons is treating eyelid retraction so many of these patients of course have lip retraction because they don't have the orbicularis and so we can often just slightly tease down the levator or mullers and bring that eyelid down just a little bit without having to put in a gold weight for the lower eyelid we have several options and it really depends on how much lower eyelid retraction they have versus the paralytic ectropion Retraction tends to happen more in the younger patients, but then once they get into their 70s and they've lost that medial and lateral support, then we're often dealing with a frank ectropion. For the lower eyelid retraction, if it's mild, I'll often just recess the lower lid retractors through a transconjunctival approach, incise the conjunctiva and lower lid retractors, dissect the lid retractors off of the conjunctiva, bring the conjunctiva up, and that'll treat a millimeter or two of lower eyelid retraction. Another option that you can add to that is you could, could potentially put in a spacer graft, a hard palate graft, or an alloderm graft. And then really the procedure that we've refined over years now is a palmaris longus tendon sling. And so that's for those really retracted lower lids that are quite lax. And so for that, we're taking typically the patient's donor, palmaris longus tendon, that's one of those extra body parts that we have and doesn't have a critical function in the wrist. About 85% of patients have that tendon. Again, our plastic surgery colleagues harvest that and we don't even take the entire tendon, just about 30 or 40% of the tendon, about a 10 centimeter segment or less. And we are wrapping that around the medial canthal tendon, which we access through a gull wing incision at the medial canthus and then a drill hole typically in the lateral rim. And then it slides in a pretarsal suborbicularis space through the lower eyelid. And that really functions as a hammock to lift up that eyelid. And with that, we've had some really 
impressive results of being able to treat three to four millimeters of paralytic lower eyelid retraction and even some cicatricial, some of our hard, not facial nerve palsy cases, but some of our hard reconstructive cases also. And then for the ectropion cases, those often are more amenable to a canthopexy tarsal strip. Um, so I test things out in the clinic. If I can quite easily get the eyelid back into normal position just with some manual distraction of the eyelid, then that patient is a good candidate for a routine tarsal strip. Maybe throw in a lower lid retractor repair through a transconjunct high-wall approach. But if it's really a retracted but not ectropic lid, then I'm thinking about the other procedures, particularly the palmaris longus sling. And then the other nice thing about the palmaris longus sling is that can also be done with a donor tendon. If the patient doesn't want any donor site morbidity, we can use cadaveric tissue, for example, like a plantaris tendon, then that's widely available. It's such a unique procedure and really beautiful results. I think it's amazing to just hear about because not that many people do it. And it's, it's really special that we can offer it to our patients here. Well, and it's one of these things where we work as a team, and so we challenge each other as a team, something that I'm excited about that Samir and Walid are working on is potentially doing a transplant or a graft of the patient's platysma muscle. So the platysma is the next thinnest muscle other than the orbicularis, and so going to the unaffected side, because the affected side is also, that's innervated by cranial nerve seven. So go to the unaffected platysma, take a small strip of that muscle mm. and actually put it in to replace the orbicularis. That has been done, not bringing in any nerve graft with it mm. with reported success. So we're trying to figure out how that works and if it does work. So we're excited to potentially try that out in patients who understand the risks and benefits and that it's a novel procedure mm. to, to potentially really truly animate the lower eyelid. Stay tuned. I, you know, there are so many providers that care for patients with facial nerve palsy, lubricating. I'm sure some know tarsorophy or understand a lateral tarsal strip. But just even the complexity of what you shared and all of the options, and they're continuing to emerge, is fascinating. And certainly it just underscores the importance of being connected to resources for your patients like yours to provide consultation, allow help to be provided for wherever you might practice to have these resources available or exciting um, in these tough cases. Yeah, I think it's great. Thank you for taking us through all the options. Really, really good and helpful to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a couple points for patients are that we often encounter patients who have been told that nothing can be done. And I think it's certainly worth a consultation to find out what does it involve and is this something you're up for? And then the other thing is that I always think of a patient who was in his 90s who told me, you're never too old to want to smile. Hmm. So there's a lot that we can do for patients of all ages. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for coming and sharing this time with us and bringing smiles to our faces as we visit with you. And uh, we appreciate you sharing your expertise with our listeners. It was my pleasure. Thank Thanks you. So much. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening. And we definitely look forward to sharing more 